You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a warm welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. But before we begin with the interviews, the wonderful news that the Treaty to Ban Nuclear Weapons has been made effective with the 50th UN signatory. This allows the historic text to enter into force after 90 days. In coming weeks, I'll be speaking with people from ICANN, the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, a coalition that was the 2017 Nobel Prize winner for its key role in bringing the treaty to fruition. But today, the 2019 coup in Bolivia defeated and once again have a people's government. The sentencing of two more of the ploughshare seven in the US, increasing pressure to stop demolition of a hero's monument in northern Philippines, and part one of the 2020 Edward Said Memorial Lecture with Melissa Park. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when, well, a couple of weeks ago, the billionaire Perrich brothers won the They Would Say That Wouldn't They Award for declaring getting 30 mil of our money for land worth 3 mil, well, valued at 3 mil, at least back to them on a valuation of less than 1 mil, as a reasonable price. They would say that, wouldn't they? They're not going to say we ripped off the Commonwealth big time. But this week they were joined in an almost more enthusiastic endorsement of the rip-off, or sorry, deal, by Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo What's-His-Name, who said the price was a bargain. In 30 years we would have paid a lot more, he disclosed an acute sense of economic literacy. As a result, I'm putting my house up for sale and by calculating its probable value in 30 years, I'm asking $125 million. Maybe I should ask for more because the buyer will be getting a real bargain. I hope I'm not cheating myself. The big worry is, what's his name? I think it's Michael. Michael McMake the Rich Richer. He's so dynamic. Big worry, this financial whiz kid has a say in how the government handles our money. A further worry is, he might be one of the more advanced thinkers. And senior bureaucrats, like at True Blue Aussie Post. The very, very expensive watches are in the mail. Or two highly paid lawyers at the top of the securities body supposed to prevent rip-offs, claiming trillions in expenses, including having the public purse pay your rent, which they obviously couldn't afford from their enormous salaries. And after the government gave Lord Rupert a whopping Fox Tellet, Lord Rupert's Way Pay TV, 30 million to broadcast underrepresented sports, and another 10 million to cover women's soccer, it then charged the public ABC for the ABC to show the True Blue Aussie team's games. Win-win for Lord Rupert, a great believer in free enterprise. For eons and bred up, whipped up since 1917, the US of the UN of the US of the world has seen the most dangerous threat to liberty, freedom and democracy, the colour red often oozing threateningly under many an innocent bed. So I was a touch bemused when big supremo Donald Trample the Poor told an adoring crowd of unmasked, non-distance deep thinkers there would be a big red wave, best big red wave ever, ever. And I thought, my God, he's picked up a copy of Das Kapital and seen the light. 
infrared, presumably. But then the excitement settled down and I realised for some inexplicable reason he meant an unreformed himself. And I thought, we'd love a big red wave if only it was a big red wave. Not either four more years of megalomanic narcissistic policy chaos or a return to the normal liberty, freedom and democracy servitude to the real power. We can but imagine how many more US people would have suffered, would have died, but for Donald's unswerving commitment to control the China virus. Well, he told us if it had been left to the nation's number one epidemiologist, millions would have died because Dr. Anthony Fauci is an idiot, a disaster. Biggest idiot ever, ever. Biggest disaster ever, ever. Who advocated irrational ideas like distancing, masks, contact tracing, even lockdowns, all of which Donald said would have led to the deaths of millions. He didn't explain his hard evidence or reasoning. <laughs> Did I say reasoning? But he, but he may well have meant the death of millions of dollars. Remiss of me, I'm sure, listener, you're wondering what's happening to our annual coverage of the big game, but sadly it was called off, and in a year when one of the teams, the pejorative Dan Socialist, made the grand final for the first time up against the regular finalist, the caring business class team, captained by Scuttle Them Morlatch's son, a.k.a. Scummo. Let's hear our caller, Kevin, explain. He's with our regular special comments expert, Michelle. Thank you, yes, a sensation. The game had to be called off when the teams couldn't agree on the rules. More last son and his vice-captain Friday Icebergs were irate at the conditions the pejorative Dan insisted on, claiming the socialists were destroying the viability of a game and the game's economy couldn't survive the pejorative Dan's unnecessary and soul-destroying restrictions like... Only five players from each side could be on the ground at the one time, and players not allowed to cover more than five kilometres in the course of a game, and playing hardball, no pun intended, by insisting the five players from each side go nowhere near each other, and the ball be sanitised whenever a player touched it, which would have slowed the game down a fair bit. And a further dispute occurred when Friday Icebergs insisted the umpires be chosen from an independent panel appointed by the sundry chambers of profits, and the pejorative Dan Socialist said they needed to think about it, even though he assured Friday Icebergs there is no bigger supporter of the sundry chambers of profits than his team. And as he kept thinking about it, it was the next day, and the game had to be called off. A, a sensation, Michelle. Very interesting, Kevin. Mr. Morlachson, a.k.a. Scummo, and Mr. Pejorative Dan couldn't agree on the rules, and the game had to be called off early next day. A brilliant analysis, Michelle. Bring it insight. What would we do without you? Well, listen, that explains that sad situation. In the sweet and sour department, the CFMEU mining division has attacked the government for its, quote, undiplomatic, reckless and sometimes bizarre attacks on China. All very good, except its real objection. They pose a grave threat to coal exports. Oh dear. We are great supporters of trade unionism, but oh dear. 
Another whom we'd love to support and who supports 3CR in this segment to the hilt, Senator Erica Betts on the bosses, has taken to demanding Chinese true blue Aussies condemn the Chinese communist dictatorship and swear allegiance to the dear baby Jesus as opposed to the freedom of speech they enjoy in True Blue Aussie. Freedom to condemn the Chinese communist dictatorship, leaving Joseph McCarthy turning in his grave. Last week we commented on the ACTU agreeing that companies inadvertently underpaying workers would be exempt from civil penalties, meaning 100% of caring employers would be exempt. Well, well, this week, a truly innovative industrial breakthrough, the IFA, actually it's not new, it's individual flexibility arrangements, memories of work choices practiced assiduously at the which bank which used to be our bank, 15,000 workers giving up incidental conditions like rostered days off, overtime payments, guaranteed pay increases, maximum hours and annual loading, and other enterprise agreement entitlements, in return for which they receive a fabulous few extra dollars in their pay packets. And no doubt the expert financiers at the which bank which used to be worked it out so the workers would be so much better off. But unfortunately, they ever so slightly miscalculated and it turned out the workers were actually worse off. A major shock, we can be sure, to the poor witch bank. A mere $53 million miscalculation. $53 million in underpayments. $53 million in inadvertent underpayments. Not, inadvert not inadvertent. Finally, back in the US of the man of peace, he declared himself the peace president. When will he receive the Nobel Peace Prize he so deserves? Perhaps shared with that epitome of peace and tranquility his secretary for US of world state Mike Pompeo or else, the self-proclaimed peace president announced along with his very, very, very close friend Zion Supremo Benjamin, not another Yahoo, really Benjamin would be another most worthy recipient to share the peace prize, announced Sudan now recognised Zion and recognised the Palestinian non-land non-people had no right to complain about having no land while Zion occupied what used to be their land and occupying what land to which they were banished. Selfish, selfish non-land non-people. The third recognised Zion in recent weeks and not recognised the non-land non-people. We can't have peace, which is Zion and the US Arab's greatest wish and ambition, as long as the Palestinian non-people insist on having land, Benjamin was all sincerity. We extend the hand of peace to the Palestinian non-people, call on them to renounce their unreasonable demand to have their own land. That would be seizing and occupying another people's country. Now, I raise this because Donald Benjamin and the um, peace team thank Sudan for its act of solidarity by removing it from the list of cruel, heartless countries that export terrorism. That is, the US of has a list of countries it doesn't like whom it claims export terrorism. That is, other countries. Good afternoon. Mr. Kevin Healy, and don't forget, 9 o'clock tomorrow for City Limits with Kevin and the crew. The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterised by profit and power.
And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. In 2002, a US-backed coup was undone in Venezuela. And recently, in 2020, Bolivia has revised the US-backed coup, which saw its leftist president, Evo Morales, ousted from the lithium-rich nation after a year of rule by the coup regime. The movement towards socialism, MAS, has been restored to power as a government for the people. Fred Fuentes is an activist, a journalist and a writer, and we spoke at the weekend, and I asked him first to begin with the presidency of Evo Morales, which was began with his election as president in 2005, and which lasted until the coup last year, and what was happening in Bolivia in the early 2000s, which saw him elected. In order to understand Evo Morales' election, to the presidency in 2005. It's important to really look at two factors. There's probably a range, but I think there's two key factors that really explain how we get to the Evo Morales presidency. The first is, is the general political context, and that is that in, at least for the previous five years, although even before that there was already the emergence of a, of a new uh, social movement, campesino unions, trade unions that were beginning to, to sort of mobilise and protest. But it's really in 2000, and in particular with the water war in Cochabamba, uh, which was basically an uprising in one of the largest cities in, in Bolivia uh, against water privatisation, that we just see a, a spiralling, a, a rapid increase, uh, not just of sectoral protests, that is individual sectors protesting for their specific and immediate rights and demands, but the, the construction of alliances between all of these movements around issues of national importance, in particular natural resources. So after 2000, and we see in 2002 an uprising over the question of gas, uh, which ends up, uh, which leads to the overthrow of the president at that time, Gonzalo Sanchez de la Sada. And then in 2005, once again the question of the gas. Uh, to a lesser extent, but still uh, an issue that was burning over these years, a question of a, a constituent assembly to rewrite a new constitution and recognise indigenous people in that new constitution leads to another mobilisation, which brings down uh, then-President Carlos Mesa, paving the way to the 2005 elections that Evo Morales wins. So that's certainly one part of it, that, that sort of wave of social protest um, that goes from 
local campesino um, organizations, uh, urban poor groups, particularly in the largely indigenous city of El Alto, uh, fighting for their rights, gradually building alliances, taking on a, a, some key national demands that bring down governments and, and, and force through uh, elections in 2005. But parallel to that, is also the importance is the process of the construction of what is today known as the movement towards socialism, the, the Mass Party. The Mass Party dates back to the to the mid 90s, and represents a break with some of the, the social movements with the with the traditional parties and even the the, the left parties in Bolivia, beginning with the coca growers in the Chapare region, where Evo Morales at the time was a, a trade union leader, but also linking up with some other rural, indigenous, rural campesino organisations. These groups begin in, in the early to mid-90s to basically say, look, it, it's not enough to just keep protesting. You know, the, the people in Parliament, they're going to continue to make laws that are against our interests. So really the only way we can change things for good is if we get into Parliament and we are the ones that, that change the laws and write laws for, for our interests. So these, these campesino organisations come together, they form what was then called the political instrument for the sovereignties of the people. So it was always seen not as a, a, a traditional electoral party, but simply as a kind of a political wing of the social movements. Uh, the social movements would mobilise on the streets and, and concurrently they would, in the political sphere, run elections with this political instrument. Unable to get electoral registration, they were given the electoral registration uh, by the owner of a defunct party known as the Movement Towards Socialism, and hence they adopt that name for, for running elections. In the, in the late 90s, because of the, the, the base that the, the coca growers have in the Chapari, uh, which you know, overwhelmingly votes for the mass, they elect Evo Morales together with a few others into parliament. And through the 2000s, the mass becomes a kind of political expression of these social protests that are occurring. So in the, in the 2002 elections, Evo narrowly misses out on winning that, that, that election against Gonzalo Sanchez de la Saba, who, as I mentioned, was then overthrown in the protest the following year in, in 2003. And gradually the MAS not only begins to incorporate other social movements, other trade union groups, other urban uh, organisations, but begins to expand its reach and, and, become, uh, and is able to attract support, even from those sectors that are not traditionally aligned with the left the urban middle class sectors, professionals and intellectuals who see in the mass the possibility of a different Bolivia, a, a Bolivia not ruled by the traditional parties uh, govern, uh, imposing neoliberal policies and repressions uh, uh, against the protests. So those two factors, the street mobilisations and the conscious decision of a, of a section of those uh, social movements to construct a political instrument and contest elections, is what culminates in Eva Morales' election in 2005. Well, you've got the party incorporating the words towards socialism. How far along that path did he travel as Bolivia's first ever president from the country's indigenous populations? Well, firstly, just to you know, mention again, it, it, it is always important to remember that the, the, the word socialism, even though it's in the party's name, was not, not the original choice of those movements that, that formed the, the political instrument. So in, in some ways, they, they get the label of socialism because that's, that's the, the electoral ticket that that's offered to them for them to be able to, to stand in candidates. Obviously, the fact that they accept it means that they don't reject socialism, but it, it wasn't an inherent sense that when these organisations first formed as a party that they would 
uh, openly advocate for socialism or that that was necessarily their objective. But you know, as, as, as time goes on, they, you know, they, they, they identify with the Marx name, even if many of the social organisations actually in the rural areas continue to refer to it as the EPSEP, the Political Instrument for the Sovereignty of the People, the IPSP. Once elected in 2005, the, the, the government, Evo Morales, his vice president, Alvaro Garcia Linera, are very conscious that the ability for Bolivia to move towards constructing a social society is extremely limited, given we're talking about a country whose economy is, you know, is greatly dependent on global circuits of capital, that's greatly dependent on the extraction and sale of natural resources, that is inherited a country with you know, high levels of extreme poverty. So really the the, the key thing that the government sets about doing is starting to lay the framework for being able to, to, to transition to something that, that, that fundamentally breaks its capitalism. But it, but it you know, certainly never achieved that during its time in government. Uh, that is the, the fundamental break of capitalism, and it's still a, a fair way from it. But what it, what it was able to do was change to a certain extent, although not fundamentally break, Bolivia's relationship with the international markets, and largely it changes that by giving the state a bigger role over natural resources. Uh, it still extracts natural resources and sells those on the international markets, but it's the Bolivian state and not transnationals who decide the terms on which they are sold and ensure that the majority of the wealth from those sales remain in the country. A redistribution of that wealth in order to tackle extreme poverty, issues of healthcare, education, basic services. And concurrently with that, is a kind of promotion of the forms of social economy that already to a certain extent exist in Bolivia and trying to both strengthen them, for example, in the countryside, communal forms of land ownership or communal forms of production in the, in the urban areas, uh, cooperatives, uh, collectives, uh, using that as a basis towards, you know, as, as some, laying some kind of foundation towards a, a transition to socialism and simultaneously also increasing the, the, the capacity of the, of the working class in Bolivia, in part by, for instance, trying to move the mining uh, sector away from individual miners uh, or cooperative miners and more towards uh, you know, workers uh, employed by state companies in, in the mining sector. So the government has always understood that in order to be able to transition towards socialism, it would be necessary to strengthen those two forces, the, the sort of communal, indigenous, cooperative, social economy sector and the working class movement in Bolivia. It achieved some of that way. It also achieved some of the, uh, the way of the transformation of, of the economy, but it still, even if could, it, it still isn't uh, in the position of being able to say that it has uh, been able to lay that framework, let alone really begin to transition to, towards socialism. Nevertheless, a, a large number of the poor did benefit greatly. Absolutely, and that was the, the key priority of the, the mass government. The key priority was essentially implementing the demands that the social the wave of protests in the two, early 2000s had generated. That was recuperate control of natural resources, use the wealth of natural resources in order to you know, tackle poverty a constituent assembly in order to rewrite a constitution, another important achievement of the Evo Morales government, and a generalised empowerment of the indigenous majority. And that is, today, uh, you know, or certainly under the Evo Morales government, you know, that, that sense that it was no longer something to be uh, shamed of, 
uh, it was no longer a sense that Indigenous people were second-class citizens, that no matter how you dressed, how you looked, uh, no matter what your surname was, that you, you, you had the right to be treated as equal and, and participate in politics at every sphere, uh, from, from the local level at the protest all the way to the presidential palace. So that was also a really important aspect of the Eva Morales government, that empowerment of the Indigenous majority, which in part explains why the reaction against Eva Morales, uh, even though it, it, it tries to present itself as being against fraud and against Evo centralising power in, in his hands and leads to the, to the coup in the, at the end of last year, what we quickly see is that how quickly that descends to anti-Indigenous violence, racism on the streets, paramilitaries attacking women in, wearing the traditional Indigenous wear, because really that, that, that is a big part of what has generated the opposition uh, to the mass sectors of society that do, are not willing to tolerate that idea that they should have to share public spaces uh, with people who for their entire life they've seen as, as second-class citizens, but who today those same Indigenous people see themselves as, as just as rightfully uh, being able to be in those public spaces as anyone else. So in a sense, he, he seriously got at the nose of a big portion of the middle class and also the elites by focusing on the Indigenous people and the poor, where in, in the past they've been used to having virtually lots of themselves. Absolutely. I, I mean, the, the best way to kind of understand what, what Bolivia was like prior to the, the arrival of, of the mass government is, is essentially to compare it to apartheid in South Africa. The, the difference was it wasn't enshrined in law as it was, but you know, your, what your surname was determined you know, where, where, where basically you, you, you lived, where you were able to go. You know, the, the class structure in, in Bolivia was, was racialized. If, if you were indigenous, you were almost certainly in the, in the poor sector and had little to no chance of getting out, out of that sector, even though you were the majority of the country. If you were from a white background, if you were from a, a Spanish descendant family, you almost certainly you know, assured some kind of job, whether it was in the, in the state, in the public, public sector, uh, whether it was in, in the university, uh, whether it was uh, you know, in, in some level of, of management of a company. This is, was the society that, that existed uh, prior to that. Now, it's not that the Evo Morales government came and kicked out all of those people and replaced them all with Indigenous people. Rather, what it said is, look, we all have a right to sit at this table. We all have the right to be able to have our say. Uh, we all have the right to be able to wear what we want to wear, for instance, uh, when we work in the public sector, if, if we wear our traditional Indigenous clothes, that that is as equal as, as it is to whatever uh, uh, non-Indigenous people um, might wear. But this was just sort of too much, really, for a sector of society to tolerate, a sector of society that, as I said, had just become completely accustomed to you know, this privilege that they, they, they had in the society purely on the basis of their, their skin colour or their surname and had grown up to understand that the, the rest of society was, was always going to be second class. And, 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 and so this, this fundamental change is, you know, really, really gets reflected on all sorts of levels of, of the living society, in, even to, for example, and, and you know, it's, um, it's a small example, but I think sort of it gives a good reflection of how things dramatically changed uh, with the arrival of the Eva Morales government. Was that you know it was very common to hear in, in the urban middle class sectors, and there were articles in the newspaper about this this phenomenon that that all of a sudden these white middle class families couldn't find servants for their homes. 
And that's, of course, because previously they were all Indigenous people who, who played this role of servants, but now, uh, because of the Evo Morales government, had decided, well, I don't need to be a servant to make a living. I can go for, for work elsewhere, or I can go back to school to finish my schooling so that I can have at least some formal education, or I can even go to university and, and get a qualified education and strive to be something more than that. And so all of a sudden, the, the newspapers are filled with ads looking, looking for servants, and they're just unable, unable to fill that. Um, and so it just gives you a small indication of just, just how that, you know, the, the way people view themselves in society very quickly changed uh, with the arrival of the first Indigenous president in Bolivia and the policies that the, the Musk government uh, implemented. And Morales was lauded early on in his time for his commitment to the environment. He didn't keep up those commitments that he said he would. I, I would disagree. I think the reality is that m- many people refused to listen to what Evo really had to say about the environment and tried to impose their vision of what environmentalism in Bolivia would look, would look like. But it was a vision that not only did the Evo Morales government never say it stood for, but is one that is largely rejected by Bolivians. And that is a vision that essentially wants to relegate Bolivia to just being well, one big national park to save the trees there so that everyone else around the world can continue to pollute. And the Evo Morales government has always been very clear. It says we have to be able to strike a very fine balance between doing as much as we can to protect Mother Earth, but also dealing with the basic needs that our people have and we understand that the only genuine way that we'll be able to resolve this very tense relationship between those two factors is with international help. For 500 years, Bolivia's wealth was stolen. What the Bolivians are asking for is for at least part of that wealth to come back to the country so that they can alleviate some of that poverty and help to keep some of the natural resources in the ground. But that help was never forthcoming, neither from governments or, or from the NGOs who spent the time criticising Evo Morales. And so the government has had to attempt to run that fine line of protecting the environment and looking after the basic needs and rights of, of, of its population. Now, errors have been made by the government, but also many times pressured by the local communities who, for instance, have relied on, as one example, and local cooperative miners who have relied on that for, for, for decades to be able to survive and who in some cases are some of the most toxic forms of mining because in, they largely operate in a sort of a grey area um, so there's no, no kind of regulations over the type of mining they do. But every time the government has tried to regulate it, these sectors have, have shut down entire towns and cities uh, in, in protest and so the government has had, to, has had to back down. Otherwise, what is it going to do? Uh, repress these miners, force them to lose their livelihoods and, in, and lose the, the, the support that the, the government ha, has been getting from this sector. So it's been a very difficult uh, situation, but I think unfortunately uh, it, it's been largely portrayed or misportrayed uh, outside of Bolivia as is somehow this idea that uh, Evo promised something, that something that he promised was what all Bolivians wanted uh, and that subsequently Evo betrayed that. The reality is that I think the Bolivian government has, by and large, we have a few errors, but by and large reflected how most Bolivians view their relationship with, with natural resources, their relationship with the land, their relationship with the environment um, and Mother Earth. Well, I know I got up the nose of the US and, and they say that in 2019 the US was the backer of the coup. Was it then a surprise that he lasted as long as he did because of his opposition to the US? 
Well, he lasted as long as he did because of the, the, the high level of support that he had in the population. The coup that occurred last year was not, not the first time that there had been an attempt to overthrow the Evo Morales government. In fact, very early on in his term, uh, there, there was an attempt in 2008 uh, to, to overthrow the government, uh, one that you know, was basically brought the country to, to the brink of, of civil war because you had the sort of eastern region, which tends to be less indigenous, tends to congregate uh, the, the sort of uh, gas corporations, uh, tends to co- uh, incorporate some sort of important sections of the, the rich class in, in Bolivia, essentially threatening to, to break up the country or bring down Eva Morales, if Eva Morales, you know, what did, didn't go. And it was only because of popular mass support and mobilisation by the social movements that have brought Eva to power for a street protest and, and at the ballot box that they were able to defeat that. The, the, the problem was, though, after 14 years of government, after a, a sort of a, a, a reflux of the social movements who had, to a certain extent, become uh, bureaucratised as, as many of their leaders had taken up positions within the state, whether that be in ministries or, or as ministers, whether it just be the general sort of wearing down of, of the mystique uh, that Eva had as being the, the first Indigenous president, all, all of these factors, also the, the fact that he had tried to push forward with his own re-election, even though it was a hotly contested issue and, the, and a referendum to try to change the constitution to allow him to, to run had, had been defeated, all of these factors meant that his popular support had to a certain extent, dissipated, although it still remained quite large. I mean, he still obtained 47% of the vote in, in the last election, so it was far from being a, a small minority, what, what he had. But the fact that his support had, to a certain extent, dropped and the social movements had kind of left the streets open for the opposition to basically come on to the streets and mobilise, as they did following last year's election, really explained how, why that coup was successful. What we're seeing in the year since, leading to now, is a, is a partial return, not an not exact replica, but a partial return to what we saw or what I talked about in 2000, 2005. That is, the social movements regroup, they get together, they say, look, you know, we, we've got to do something, we've got to win back democracy, we, we, we know how to do this, we've done this before, we win this by combining the strength we have on the streets together with our, uh, our parliamentarians that we have in Parliament to continue to defend any democratic space that, that exists and fight for new elections to ensure that we will win those, those elections. And it was those street protests that uh, forced the, the government to, to go ahead with these elections. They had already delayed them three times, and I've no doubt they would have tried to delay them again um, if it hadn't have been for the big protests that had occurred in, in August that essentially paralysed large, large chunks of the country through that re- regrouping, through the fact that a lot of those sectors that had turned away from the mass had seen the reality of what the opposition represented, which was, you know, anti-Indigenous violence, repression, a return back to the dark days of prior to the mass government. That explains why this time around, not only did the mass once again win, but in fact got an even higher vote than they got last year in, in, in October. And who is the new president and, and where is Morales now? The new president is Luis Arce. So Luis Arce was economy minister under Morales for pretty much most of the 14 years that, that Morales was, was in power. Uh, there was a short break he had for health reasons, but by and large, he, he was there. So he has a lot of prestige for his role in basically you know, make, turning Bolivia into what was previously an economic basket case into the, the fastest growing economy in the region over, over the last decade. 
and and not just that it, you know, that economic growth happened, but that that economic growth led to a redistribution of wealth that saw people's you know basic you know sort of people's quality of life rapidly improve over that time. So that's who RC is. RC was able to run on that precedent of what he had achieved as economy minister, as having been a minister with with, with Eva Morales and having really been the architect of the kind of economic project that the, the Musk government had implemented during its 14 years in, in government, which was by and large something that was you know, broadly supported and, and, and recognised as, as a success, even by the same institutions that generally didn't like the Evo Morales government, like the, the World Bank and the IMF, who regularly pointed to the, you know, the, the figures in Bolivia's economy to demonstrate that you know that that it was the best functioning economy in in the region. And Morales? Well, Morales is currently in Argentina. After the coup, Morales was forced into exile. He remains in Argentina. Of course, he would want to, he wants to go back to Bolivia. He was wanted to run as a senator for the for the Cochabamba, which is the position he previously had in Parliament before being being elected president. Uh, but was denied denied that right. He he's facing a number of charges by the the coup rage from the coup regime of terrorism, uh, narco trafficking, or all, all, all sorts of trumped up charges that he's facing. Uh, what role he will play? Well, of course, firstly he has to make a decision, and the new government will will you know I'm sure at some point discuss his return to Bolivia. But Luis Arce has made it clear, and, and Eva Morales has also made it clear that this is a new government. This is the Arce government. And that is, and is Luis Arce who will decide his ministers, and that Evo will not play a role, a direct role in the cabinet. Having said that, I have no doubt that Evo will play an important role in the political party, in the mass, as a as a leader of that party, as a, as a sort of someone who continues to have a lot of authority in in the social movements in Bolivia. I imagine that that's the kind of role he will play, including uh, uh, you know resuming his role as president of the Coca Growers Union in, in the Chaparro. Uh, but that's what people have said. That's that's what Morales has expressed. That's what Arce has expressed. I think that's a general sentiment that many in the mass uh, agree with. That is, they want Morales back. They want him to play a role in the mass, but they believe that this is a, in order to present a new face, a fresh face, that this, this should be a, a different government, one in which uh, Evo doesn't have a, a position in the cabinet. Finally, Fred, the new government has to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic now. Oh, absolutely. Look, the, the, Bolivia is, you know, depending on which day you look at it, but it's essentially in, in the top five for the, the, the highest per capita death rate in the world. So the, the government's mismanagement of the pandemic has been, you know, has led to a horrific death toll in Bolivia. It, it doesn't make the news because Bolivia's overall population is, is small. It's maybe 10 million, give uh, or, 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 or take a bit. But, but on a per capita basis, it's been ravaged by, by the COVID-19. And that problem has been compounded by the fact that the, the coup regime essentially used the guise of the, of the pandemic for corruption. So one of the most famous of the many corruption scandals that the Anies' cabinet was involved in was the, the overpricing of, of ventilators that were brought to, to help deal with the COVID-19 crisis. So the government will have to deal with that. It will have to deal with the economic fallout, not just of the pandemic, but of, of just the general economic crisis in, in Bolivia that seen the, expects the GDP to contract by 11% uh, this year. But it's already beginning to announce some immediate measures about how, how to deal with this. Um, and some of the first measures it said that it would do is, for, is firstly a social security payment, what they call a, a hunger payment, 
uh, to help deal with immediately with some of the, the economic concerns or problems of, of the poor will be paid within within weeks. This is saying that was already approved by the National Assembly, but which the coup regime blocked and would would not sign the decree to, to facilitate that. The government is pushing that both to help alleviate economic distress, but also to promote internal internal demand and promote the internal market. It's also said that it wants to go to the IMF, the World Bank, other institutions with, with which the Bolivia has loans, whether that be old loans, whether that be loans that the government has, has signed, uh, including just in, in the last few weeks before, before the elections, to say, look, uh, we can't continue to pay this while we are ravaged by this pandemic. We need to renegotiate either a moratorium or a complete cancellation of the interest and the capital of, of these loans. Um, because the burden of the pandemic has to be shared by everyone. It can't just be the government. It has to be these institutions as well that, that play their role. So that's another another move that the, the government has said that, it, that it's going to do, combined with issues which are promised in the elections and is already beginning to draw up frameworks for a wealth tax or a tax on top 1% and to, to use that wealth to be able to fight the pandemic and also as well as a reduction in the GST to help with stimulating the, the purchasing of, of goods in the internal market and alleviating that tax burden on, on the poor, given that GST-style taxes generally hit the poor hardest. It's a start. You know, there's going to be many challenges. As I said, the Arce the government inherits uh, a situation very different to the one that Eva Morales did. You know, we've got a global pandemic, a global economic crisis, commodity prices that are nowhere near the level that they were under the Morales government. It's a very difficult situation. But the mass is clear on where it wants to go. It has received a, a, a resounding electoral mandate, one that I, I think no one really predicted. I mean, I think, you know, certainly, you know, some people were saying it was possible that the mass could win, but I don't think anyone expected they would get at last count 54%. And I have no doubt that when the, when the final tally comes about, that vote will increase at least a couple more percentage points, uh, given that the, the mass's heartland is those rural areas, the last places where the votes are. Uh, counted, so we'll probably see a result close to 56, maybe even 57 percent. You know, a, a huge mandate. I mean, it's almost unheard of in any country in the world for a head of state to kind of receive that level of support. So, it's it's a good start in a very difficult situation. There'll be many challenges ahead, but I think for for now, uh, I, I imagine that that you know a, a large majority of Bolivia is continuing to celebrate the fact that they've been able to you know through through protesting on the streets and, and protesting at the ballot box, overturn a, a, a coup regime that really threatened to take Bolivia, uh, not just back to the time before Evo Morales was elected, but yeah, really to, to the dark days of, of, of the military dictatorship. You know, we've seen some of the, the levels of repression that occurred after the coup, seeing the greater role that was being given to the military in, in sort of policing protests and the kind of discourse coming from the government of uh, accusing anyone uh, dissented to the to the government as being terrorists, narco-terrorists, narco-traffickers, you know, the discourse to, to try to demonise and, and, and to project them as, as the other. I think many many people were scared by what they saw and, 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 and have, you know, come back to the mass uh, to, to give them give them another chance and to, to see if they can get Bolivia out of the mess that it's currently in, that, it, that the, the coup regime has left it in. Thanks, Fred. No worries, thank you. Fred Fuentes, journalist, author and researcher. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. 
Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. On the 15th of October, a Catholic activist priest was sentenced to 33 months in a federal prison for conspiracy, destruction of federal property, destruction of naval property and trespassing, and three years of supervised release. A fellow activist was sentenced the following day to 14 months imprisonment three years of supervised release and a share of the 33000 in restitution fees. To explain who these two men are and the dastardly crimes they committed on the 4th of October in 2018 at St Mary in Georgia, I spoke with a friend and fellow peace activist, Brian Terrell, a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, whose home is a small farm in Iowa. Brian, I've detailed the sentences. Can you outline the activities of these two men and five others on a day in October 2018? Yeah, well, what happened was October 4th, two years ago, was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Seven friends went into the Trident base at Kings Bay, Georgia, and this is the Atlantic base of the Trident submarine, Trident nuclear submarine with nuclear missiles. There's another one in base in Washington on the Pacific, and then uh, the Atlantic base, the North Atlantic uh, in Scotland, at Fastlane, Scotland, the United Kingdom has its own fleet of these Trident submarines. They went in at night and did what even the uh, judge admitted was a symbolic and sacramental act of disarmament. They uh, came with a message that you know, Dr. King said the ultimate logic of, of racism is, is war, and they, their message was the ultimate logic of trident is omnicide, and they wanted to just talk about repentance, and they, they went to uh, one place that was, uh, they call it a shrine, the, 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 the Navy calls it a display, where they have actual, you know, uh, concrete statues of these missiles. And it's kind of strange as with the, all the controversy and in the southern United States, especially about the monuments to racists and for, you know, the Confederate uh, soldiers who, and generals who were defending slavery. Uh, and these, many of these monuments are coming down. Here you have a place where there's monuments in the honor of what is really omnicidal, uh, uh, a new word, you know, that no one could have come up with before a nuclear weapon, you know, the death of everything. All of these were um, Christian Catholics, and they went with the Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah saying that you have to turn swords into plowshares. And that isn't something that uh, the way the 
the, the language is it's put uh, in the imperative, and it's not something passive. It's not something that's going to happen. The swords are not going to magically turn into plowshares. We are enjoined to do this uh, in one way or another, and this is how they chose chose to do it. So they were arrested eventually, and, I, and this, this figures into the sentencing. It's it's kind of important that although this is one of the you know the places where these nuclear missiles and submarines, these missiles that can end all life on Earth, are stored and guarded. They were there for several hours, very close to the to the missiles, and the base police passed them several times over hours. And finally, when they came and they saw what, and just moved on. And then after a few hours, uh, one of the cops came over and looked at what happened, and he kind of laughed and he said, "I guess you know you guys are in a bit of trouble." <laughs> and and this matters because a part of the sentencing for the two men who were sentenced last week was concerning their sentence was in, enhanced. There's a, a point program in federal court uh, for crimes being committed and things that the judge is supposed to consider in sentencing. It was said that they had put put themselves and other people in danger, that, that there was in danger of loss of life which, although there were signs saying you know, lethal force authorized and people were surely thought it was worth the risk, the idea that there could have been some kind of altercation that could have ended up in a death with somebody figured in their calculations. But, of course, the calculation of what would happen if there was a mishap with the nuclear missiles, which, again, could be um, catastrophic. Whole parts of the planet could be made uninhabitable with with a, with a mistake, you know, with a mishap with the missiles. So, yeah, they were detained and held for each of the each of the um, defendants stayed in prison, stayed in jail, and uh, in remand for several months at least before being released uh, on, after posting cash bond and being on the ankle monitors and very very close supervision. Father Steve Kelly, Jesuit priest has been in jail since then and is still jailed today mostly because of a um, another charge violating probation in Washington State, which is at the other of the U.S. private bases. Yeah, then um, Elizabeth McAllister was sentenced a while ago to, I believe, 17 months, to, to, and she had spent that time, that much time in, in jail, and then the two other men this week, and there's four more in November. The sentencing has been postponed several times due to the COVID pandemic. For the trial and other hearings, we've had a number of people. I've been to Georgia, I think, three times in support of the of the plowshares. I would have really loved to have been there for both Liz's sentencing and, and for these, I think, but... I was able to listen to, they, they put it over a telephone number, and we, I was able to monitor the sentencing over the telephone. Would you like to talk a little bit more about the, what the judge had to say? Well, I'll tell you, it's a, it was a very, very, very strange scene, because I think these two hearings were ostensibly about punishing these two criminals 
I think the judge, Judge Sagadby Wood, and she is a very relatively young for a judge, and uh, I think really out of her depth. The point of these hearings was more the exoneration of Judge Lisa Godby Wood than the sentencing and punishing of two convicted criminals. In Patrick's case, they were saying there were these enhancements and the fact they put their lives, own lives and lives in danger of others in danger was an enhancement. So they were, the judge was supposed to be stricter on this. So Patrick got a number of enhancements and one of them was too about accepting responsibility. And this is this is kind of crazy because Bopak especially he wore a camera on his hat and videoed with a running commentary the whole thing, which is what the state the government used in prosecuting them. At no point did any of these people say that they didn't do it. But what the government wants is for people to say that they're sorry and they want remorse. But that's not what the statute says. You know, the, the language is just a, of taking responsibility. But of course, they didn't feel bad about it. They did, done, had done nothing wrong. So one thing, this, this enhancements, a little sidebar to this, it was, it was intended, these, this point system for sentencing was intended to make the sentencing more fair and less arbitrary by the judge's prejudice and um, the judge's conscious or unconscious biases to put in some um, objective standards. But in reality, many jurisdictions in the United States, the population of people in prison is 30 times higher than the population of black people in that district. I'm sure it's much like that in Georgia. And part of the, these point systems is you get points in your favor if you have a job, if you own a house, if you've been in the house for so, you know, a certain amount of time, kept a steady job, your education, and then they, they take away, they, they, then you have enhancements that can make it be used against you if you've been, how many times you've been arrested before, and even things like if the judge in previous trials chose to put you in prison rather than give you a fine or probation, that makes you more likely to go to jail. So it just increases the, the, the likelihood of people in color and marginal people, poor people are going to go, go to jail much more often. So the judge made all these, it looked very, very, like things were going to go very bad for Patrick, but then she gave him a sentence that was much lower than what the guidelines would have allowed, which she can do, but she has to explain her, her reasonings. And her reasoning was pretty much that she wanted to be a nice person. So she was very, very strict and looking at everything in the very worst light up until that point. And then she surprised everybody by uh, giving him what he had, he had uh, 14 months. So yeah, he has to surrender himself to a federal prison within the next 90 days. Now, what's very with Steve Kelly, and Steve Kelly is a Jesuit priest who's 71 years old. And he's been in jail since, you know, since this action two years, more than two years ago. In this courtroom, uh, as I think it probably is there too, judges have the, the decor of a courtroom is usually, you know, a dark wood paneling, and then there are portraits on the walls, mostly of former judges of that district, looking very judicial in their robes and serious looks on their faces, and look down on the look down on the court. But in Judge Godby Wood's court, she had Along with those, uh, Hans Holbein's 
portrait of Thomas More, the 16th century Lord High Chancellor of England who refused NBA said, you know, claim sovereignty over over the church, the supremacy. He refused to take the supremacy and was in for treason. But the judge pointed to the picture of Thomas More and said he was somebody like you who chose to follow a higher law. But of course there were consequences. He took those consequences. Well, for Thomas More, the consequence, he had his head chopped off. And it was strange that the judge would have the picture on the wall and the message that would be there every day that she would hold court. And the message she was getting was, well, he had it coming to him, I guess. <laughs> and, 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 and that it was used to justify her giving him 33 months in prison for his action. And Steve especially, he's, he knows he had it coming. He knows he was, he took this risk knowingly. He spent more than 10 years in prison already. He knew that he was going to go to jail for this. Just as, you know, in Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he, Christian pastor who joined a plot against Hitler, knew that he could be, that there were consequences to pay. And the young woman, Sophie Scholl in Munich during those years, who published with her brother and friends, published a newspaper criticizing Hitler and encouraging uh, uh, sedition against against the Nazis knew that it was very likely that she thought that she, she like Thomas More uh, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, would be beheaded. But this doesn't justify their judges. And the fact that Thomas More knew he was taking a risk didn't, doesn't justify in any way Henry, King Henry VIII for cutting his head off any more than the judges in Germany, the courts in Germany that put put the resistors to death or or put them in prison. So, you know, she was using this to uh, to really exonerate herself. And she gave um, Steve 33 months. He's done 30 months already. And the offer good behavior, he did not act, but I think they're, it's his charge in Washington that they don't know what they're going to do with yet, that he might be for another sentencing. But it's, yeah, for these judges and prosecutors, I find these trials fascinating because the judges and prosecutors are confronting people very, very often who are, in many cases, at least as educated as they are, which is a rare situation. Very often they are, especially in the case of, of Steve Kelly, I think, probably has spent more time in trial than the judge or the prosecutor know their way. They know the law. And even if some of them might describe themselves as anarchists, they also in a way have more respect for the law because this, the, the law is uh, to these judges and prosecutors. It's, it's just a tool and they can be, you know, they, you know the concept that uh, destroying the whole world is, is legal. Once you do that, then there isn't any, really isn't any law. There isn't any, there's no moral code between us as human beings. There's, there's, there's no, there's nothing to hold us together. So, so really in this case, and, and Patrick had uh, one of his, he's got, I believe, eight children <laughs> and one of his adult sons and, a, and an adult daughter spoke very eloquently. So that was a very, very powerful 
These hearings were very, very powerful. Yeah, the world is in a whole lot of trouble, and I don't know what good is going to come out of this. I, I don't know what's going to work. I don't know what's going to save us. Uh, but I really believe that these the actions of these friends and people with them are absolutely essential uh, for our survival as human beings. You are listening to Brian Terrell, a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, and this is 3CR. Did Steve and Patrick have the opportunity to speak at their sentencing? Oh, yes. They both spoke. A, a lot of it was they spoke to these different enhancements. They argued about, because the prosecution were saying one point held against them, and they they argued them not so much for for the sake of getting less time, but just in the sake for the sake of clarity. For example, the the idea that they didn't take responsibility for for what they did, and they they certainly did. You know, there's very few criminals who show up in court taking responsibility as, as much as they have to, to, to provide the court with photographs and to admit everything. They didn't deny anything that had been alleged against them. They simply denied that any of it was against the law, but they didn't deny doing any of it. And also the, the fact that they were putting themselves or others in danger when you know, they clearly, as much as anything is risky, you know, they did what they could to minimize that danger, and certainly the the police, even as they pointed out, even during the trial, uh, military police who had arrested them, you know, testified that their demeanor was peaceful and friendly and and not threatening. There are four others still incarcerated, are they, waiting sentencing? No, the other the others. Steve was the only one still in prison in jail in Georgia at this point. The others are. So at large, and this is something that Patrick spoke about, that this time, I think they were all in jail for, you know, each of them did, did months, different amounts of time before they agreed to leave. And actually, Liz McAllister was in jail for 17 months, and she refused to accept the, the, the conditions for release, which was like you know, to wear an ankle monitor. I think they all had to be in their homes at seven o'clock in the evening and you know, a curfew. Their ankle monitor would hook up to the telephone and GPS and everything would tell if they were, you know, and, 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 and they couldn't travel outside of their, their local community. Um, they couldn't see certain people. You know, these conditions are very, very onerous. Several of them were not able to respond to family emergencies and, and things, and, and and that this was not taken in consideration. Patrick told some of things way that this had been affected him, you know, personally. That that wasn't considered a part of the punishment. We've been punished for 30 months, <laughs> whether we've been in jail or whether we've been in, you know, on the supervised release with the ankle monitors and everything. That that ought to be considered in the uh, in the sentencing and. I think the judge's position was that no, that that was that they were privileged, you know, not be locked up in jail. So, has anyone been able to visit Steve in the last six months? He's had a few visitors, uh, mostly by mostly attorneys. It's been um, a very hard thing for him 
uh, and I believe that other visitors have to, I believe that what they're doing there in Glen County is a television kind of thing where you visit, you have to go to the jail and you can have a very brief time on a screen, uh, but you don't actually get to see or certainly not touch your incarcerated friends and loved ones. But this jail is particularly, you know, there's no outdoor recreation. Steve has not been in the sunshine or fresh air in all these months. When we saw him a year ago, and I was at his trial just about a year ago this month, you know, he'd been in many months already, and he, he, he was very, very pale. Another hardship is at this jail, he is only allowed, the only mail he's allowed to receive or send out is on a small prepaid postcard. And, you know, nothing can be glued on it. There can't be any paint on it. You can't, you know, you can just write on this little tiny postcard the message, and that's all he can send send out are these postcards. So you can't send them newspapers. Um, he can get books. They have to be new from direct from a publisher. But he can't get any, couldn't this whole time, he hasn't been able to get any newspapers or news or magazines. Steve, Steve's a very exceptional person. I think he, his, his Jesuit training is something he's taken very serious and very rigorously. Because Steve often, when he's in prison, you know, previously um, in uh, the jail situation, pre-sentencing, he's not required to work. But once he's sentenced and sent to a federal prison, which he may be for these next months, um, you're required to do your assigned work. And in the federal system, you get paid like the last time I was in seven years ago was 11 cents an hour. And actually, they're 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 each being assessed altogether $33,501 restitution to the to the Navy for the destruction that they did. And they're going to be taking that out of their prison and working. They're going to be taking it out of their prison pay. <laughs> well, they're not going to get very much out of that. But Steve refuses to work for the system. And he spent his time in solitary. He hasn't just these last 30 months. That hasn't been an issue. I heard somebody once ask him, how do you spend your time in solitary confinement? And he is not like me. <laughs> I'd be climbing the walls. But uh, Steve just said, there are not enough hours in the day because he is so brilliant and he has read so much and he remembers so much and he is thinking and he is planning and he is praying and he is meditating and just from his own inner resources, he's able to fruitfully fill a day and one day after another and, and eventually years and years of you know, his, you know, truly a contemplative soul, uh, a, a very holy man. Well, it's just as well, isn't it, the, the treatment that they get? Yes, well, you need inner resources and you also need, you need friends. You need a lot of support, so... You know, especially when in a situation where I am in solitaire and the only acts of affection you can really exchange are little tiny postcards. Well, peace and anti-war activism will continue despite sentencings of people like this. And over the past weekend in the US, there have been thousands and thousands, if not millions of people taking part in a weekend of protests. 
You've been part of that, haven't you? I have been, not not as I like with the with the COVID restrictions, and I live in a rural area, far from any kind of urban area where this thing is going on. We've had small protests even here in our little town of 26 people, but uh, I have gone each. You know, Kansas City is over 100 miles, and Des Moines is just about 100 miles. And I was with uh, uh, on Sunday. I took the trip to Des Moines to be with a uh, small group of people. There have been, as in many places around the United States, there have been um, protests, mainly about over the issue of racism. And this one was at the Iowa Supreme Court, and about disparities in in uh, law enforcement and prisons for for people of color, which in Iowa is particularly bad. And I want to say I, I, I misquoted Dr. King, and I want to I want to clear that up. What he said was the ultimate logic of racism is genocide. And what our friend said, the ultimate logic of of trident is omnicide. And I think the racism issue here is is very you know, it, it's it, it's something that goes that covers all these issues. I when I got to Des Moines and went to the the parking lot at the Supreme Court and got out, I, I met a a friend, and that was one reason why I went to was to see to see friends. Like I said, this these kind of support in these times. And he has had a um, sweatshirts, you know, to support it, to support the protesting, the bombing of of Gaza. What else? And I had a sign saying "Demilitarize the police." And uh, my friend said, "All these, all these issues, all come together around uh, racism is at the core of it." And and I think that's really that's really very true. So, yeah, this is a very strange time. It's a very the COVID restriction on top of it all. But it's I'm really astonished to be living at a time when. People just in the mainstream are discussing whether we need to have a militarized police force, whether we need to have police as we've understood them, or should we find something else? Uh, I really hope uh, that the discussion shifts to to whether we should have a militarized military. <laughs> that the thing, I think, what's happening in the streets of the United States is the war coming home. It's what we've been doing. You know, imposing on the on the rest of the world violence that, that has to come home. It has to come home to roost. I think that's one thing Dr. King was saying just before he died, saying that the, um, the violence in the streets of the United States at that time it's all you know very connected to the violence that was going on in Vietnam that he had that he had to speak out against. You know, he it was time to break the silence, and he could not speak about one without speaking about the other. What are the feelings? in your area about Trump's nominee of Amy Coney Barrett. I've heard some very disturbing stories about the organisations, the far-right organisations that she is a member of. Yeah, it's, it's very distressing, and also the fact that this nomination is being pushed through so quickly at this time, right before, right before the election, when... Also, where it's already talk about uh, Donald Trump contesting the results of the election if he loses to the Supreme Court, to which uh, Amy Coney Barrett would be a constituent member of. I wonder how she would decide. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, and, I, and I, I speak as a Catholic that I find this organization's people of praise that she 
who um, encountered them a few times over the years. It's very patriarchal and uh, very hierarchical, and it's I think not to be so prejudicial is it's very difficult to imagine somebody being a part of this organization and and being capable about being being impartial because it's not impartiality is not not a trait that they propagate um an honor one thing that's that I, that I've found particularly disturbing especially at a time like this is in her hearings for confirmation she was asked about what the constitutional rights and the First Amendment, what they entail. And they are, of course, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press. And she left out a very important part, especially at a time like this, because the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution also says, along with those rights, that Congress shall make no law abridging the right of the people to peacefully assemble for redress of grievance. If we have a constitutional right to gather together and peacefully protest, and this is very disturbing at a time when um, uh, militarized police are very much uh, abridging the, the right of people to peacefully assemble, that even to the point of in Portland and places like that, federal police in uniforms without any insignia in driving vehicles, without any marking, picking up people off the street and bringing them to questioning and putting them in jail. You know, police shooting people on the street, often with impunity, that, you know, to have someone who wants to be a Supreme Court justice up for nomination in October 2020 who doesn't recognize the right of people to gather to protest. Very, very disturbing. Finally, Brian... Is there a real sense of apprehension about the election day? It's very soon now. Yes, there is. And I know some places there have been, well, well, President Trump has pretty much asked for disruption of the, of the, uh, at at least intimidation at the polling places. And I've said that there are people calling for general strikes and other kinds of protests. Uh, preparing for if the election is stolen, even though by every poll Donald Trump is not doing very well, he still is insisting that the only way he can lose is if the election is stolen from him, is if there's some kind of fraud. So you know, people are very worried and people are thinking about that and preparing. I only wish that people would be thinking about a general strike no matter how the election goes, because it's, it's horrible and frightening as as Donald Trump is, and uh, you know, I hope he doesn't win the election. But but Joe Biden, the choice not of the people but of the Democratic Party machine, and he is saying that there will be an increase in defense spending if he's elected. He's one of the authors of the big omnibus crime act that that, that was passed in the 1990s under President Clinton, which. Um, is really responsible for the hyper incarceration. Uh, he was a huge supporter of, you know, without his support, we don't, some say that the invasion of, of Iraq in 2003 might not have happened. You know, he was a big supporter of that. Things were pretty scary. I think we should have had a, could have had a general strike 
would have been a good idea 10 years ago, 20 years ago. It will be a good idea after the November 3rd election. If Trump's elected, I will surely support and participate in the protests that, that will go on. But I think that uh, we can't be too sanguine. I think one of the, uh, thinking about these nuclear weapons, it was 2015, it was President Obama speaking about nuclear weapons. He called for what he called stockpile stewardship for our aging nuclear weapons and life extension. Is it just at a time when it's one of the first times in since people have been keeping these statistics that the life expectancy of an American citizen is actually going down, but a trillion dollars he earmarked for the extension, life extension to nuclear weapons. They have a shelf life and to, to develop new nuclear weapons. This was under President Obama. And even though Ronald, uh, Donald Trump has been trying to erase Obama's legacy and destroy everything that Obama did, anything good that he did, he has not been trying to erase this part of the Obama legacy. You know, the, the drive to make new nuclear weapons continues. Uh, in terms of the climate, too, Joe Biden and Donald Trump are arguing over who is going to be a bigger friend to the oil industry. Donald Trump in the debates accused Joe Biden of wanting to make a ban on hydrofracking, get natural gas out of the out of the ground, most dangerous and destructive ways of, of getting you know, fossil fuels out of the ground. And Joe Biden argued, no, I'm not. I'm, I, and, and actually, the natural gas industry came out in support of Joe Biden, saying that he's the one who's going to give us, that, that he's even more friendly to our business than Donald Trump. And I, I'm not trying to minimize the, the dangers that, that Donald Trump presents the planet at all, but we have problems we're not going to vote ourselves out of. It's deeper than that. And I think this is what the uh, plowshares are trying trying to show, that ordinary conventional political methods that we've been using are not commensurate with, with the threats that we're facing. It's going to take, take a bit more than voting every four years to change the direction that our country and really our planet is being headed in. Take more drastic actions than that. Thank you so much. Okay. And you'll be listening to Brian Terrell from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. During October, the Commons Library is running a crowdfunder to help keep its collection updated and free to the public. To make a tax-deductible donation, visit www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. Yet another of the Indigenous peoples of the Philippines are fighting for their land, heritage and right to self-determination. The Igorit people, indigenous to northern Philippines, the Cordillera. 
and on Indigenous Peoples Month, more than 250 human rights and civil society organisations from around the world expressed support for the defence of the Cordillera region. I'm speaking with Peter Murphy, the Chairman of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. Peter, we need to understand the history of the Cordillera, the people who identify with that area. Can you describe the country, the people and their past and present struggles against the government for their human rights and their land? The Cordillera is a really special region in the northern part of Luzon Island in the Philippines. It's a region, it's a high country, uh, and uh, it was never really conquered by the Spanish in over 350 years. But when the United States forces took over the Philippines at the end of the 19th century, for some reason, it's hard to fathom, the Cordillera people more or less opened the door to them. Uh, so there's a very, very strong sense of independence and cultural integrity in the Cordillera. But in, you know, in this last 100 years, it has been uh, you know, really impacted by, first of all, the US military got there, and then mining, gold mining is a, is a very big deal. And in the period <clears throat> in the 1960s through to now, there's really been a, a sort of a persistent or very powerful wave of investments in uh, dams and uh, irrigation systems, uh, power stations, which have aggressively broken down the ownership, you know, traditional ownership of the land and control of the land by the indigenous people. You know, a lot of people have been displaced and there's been a lot of resistance. So uh, uh, most important, I think, grouping is called the Cordillera People's Alliance. I've been a, you know, privileged in a way to take part in one of their annual events back in 1999. So they have a really strong culture of uh, dance and storytelling and song. And it's not a very powerful literate, literary uh, tradition, but much more oral. So meetings and conferences of Cordillera people uh, take the form of a, a lot of performances. The stories and arguments and cases are made out more in dance and song, which is obviously a very amazing thing for Westerners like us to participate in. But in this period now where we have uh, President Duterte's government, there's a renewed drive to build many more of these projects uh, that I've just briefly described, uh, geothermal, uh, hydropower and uh, big dams for irrigation, which would continue to divert water away from the traditional uses. People trying to argue that they, they're entitled to their free prior and informed consent um, as Indigenous peoples to any developments on their lands. The, the response from the government is selective assassinations, uh, arresting people on extraordinarily ridiculous charges, locking them up for years, going on you know, as we speak now. What does the law say in the Philippines about the rights of Indigenous peoples? On paper, it looks pretty good. Um, you know, the, the law says that First of all, the indigenous peoples that exist, that they are the traditional owners of their ancestral domains, that they have rights in the constitution and international law. So um, all of those things are there in, in the letter, but in the, in the reality on the ground, it's a, it's a far different thing. So there's like a 
National Commission of Indigenous Peoples um, and it's got commissioners which is meant to uphold all of these rights but in general the commissioners are always approving the development project. The commissioners are often uh, involved in leading the waters or pretending that they did consult people properly and, and then approve something where, whereas in fact it's very demonstrable that people vigorously oppose uh, a project. You know, that sort of underlying all of the things I've just described, which are all sort of to do with legal, um, community organisations and political processes and so on, there is a uh, sort of warfare zone as well. So there is the People's Army in the Cordillera. There's huge numbers of Philippine Army in the Cordillera. And there are issues uh, between these two forces from time to time. Not really up on on that in in any detail. I am aware of it, and uh, you know the, the sort of uh, background noise of violence is is actually really routine situation for people. The place I went to, which was in um, Mountain Province, it's a rather remote area of the Cordillera, um, in '99 had just you know maybe a month before I was there or two months, there been a a clash in the in the actual village area where I think a new people's army patrol had walked through was going away and then they were pursued by military and there were mortar bombs landed uh, machine guns from helicopters struck the village you know people were just hit because there had been a new people's army unit this, this would be very very distressing for anyone and of course Australians would find this completely abnormal. Hard to imagine living in, in an environment like that, but um, that's also part of the picture. So right now, I think with Duterte, um, it's, it's a far more, in a sense of arbitrary violence, unpredictability, and a more systematic repression. I just received an alert over the weekend, for instance, from um, an area called Kalinga, which is a different part from Mountain Province. Uh, it's saying that a woman called Beatrice Bellin, uh, a former vice chair of their uh, women's organization in this place called Inabuyog, um, was reported to have been arrested on Saturday on trumped up charges of illegal possession of firearms and explosives. Um, her house and at least 11 other houses uh, were searched by the Kalinga police. And this woman, Belen, um, was taken to the police station in the bigger place called Tabuk, Kalinga. And so the story is still unfolding. I'm afraid I receive these things maybe every few weeks. Uh, something like this will, will come from the Cordillera. And I know from telephone or Zoom conferences with people from Cordillera People's Alliance that, you know, even students in... Uh, uh, Baguio City, which is the biggest uh, city in the region, women's organisations, health workers, even lawyers are being followed during this time of the pandemic. They receive messages on their uh, mobile phones threatening them, accusing them of being New People's Army or recruiters of the New People's Army or uh, saying that they'll be killed, you're next, things like that. There is a sense of embattled, you know, the community being embattled right now. It sounds like it's a fairly big area. Is that correct? And what, what would the population be, just as a guess? 
Uh, yes, I really won't hazard a guess on the population, but it would be the population of Cordillera region would be well over a million people. In land terms, I think it, we're talking about 25% of the Luzon Island land mass. And so it's a significant region, and it's obviously a region rich in minerals and natural resources beyond that, you know, forests and and uh, water agricultural resources. It's famous for the terracing, that uh, traditional, uh, I don't know how many centuries it's been there, many, many centuries, um, where the hillsides and mountainsides were made arable by building terraces and um, being able to grow rice and other crops in the terraces. There's some very beautiful landscapes made by the people over a very long period of time. What's the role of the New People's Army there and how long have they been there? The New People's Army was founded in 1969, so that's already a very long time. The uh, role, uh, I'm not really uh, said well, that's so well informed, but in general what I understand is that uh, New People's Army's role these days, in these last few decades, has been to organise rural communities to better assert their economic needs, you know, in terms of land ownership to assert their rights to land. In the Cordillera, I'm imagining, you know, because I really haven't been informed in detail on this, that it is all about the assertion of the ancestral domain rights, that is, the, the actual legal rights of Indigenous peoples to control of their lands. And uh, in other parts of the Philippines where not so much an Indigenous peoples area, but uh, more of a peasant agricultural economy. Um, it's about land reform. And, and also in terms of the economic issues, I think uh, the main ideas developed and, and organised around are that they, if, you, if the people have to borrow money from a, a money lender to finance cropping or other uh, development on their land, that the interest rate is a reasonable rate. And in terms of sharecropping um, and other deals which are made in about what happens to the production on land that, uh, you know, it's a fair or fair rate uh, of payment that might be made to a, a money lender or a landlord. I don't think landlordism is such a big problem in the Cordillera, but it could well be that some areas they're subcontracting out to agribusinesses for cash crops and that would be more this type of economic bargaining. So to do that, people need to be organised. So, you know, it's a bit like a farmers association concept or a trade union concept that we're, we're talking about. So I think that's the main role of the New People's Army, which you can see as a sort of a political and economic organising role. Beyond that, I'm sure they, they persist with this idea of accumulating weapons and uh, recruiting more members of the New People's Army. And as you can imagine, from the sense of embattlement of the communities and uh, repression that's so evident that there's probably always a stream of people wanting to join. They always need to be trained and um, they would need to be equipped with um, weapons and also all sorts of other things which go with that, you know, like education, healthcare, and so on. Can you talk now about the monument and why this has been brought to the forefront? This is a particular, you know, important issue. The Cordillera People's Alliance itself is um, 
inspired by a resistance in the 1970s and 80s to the Chico Dam project, which was a very big hydro and irrigation project financed by the World Bank. It was in the Kalinga area. The traditional uh, leadership of the community got focused on this threat, which would have you know, inundated a lot of the lands of the people and displaced a huge part of the community and uh, uh, organised a sort of uh, grassroots resistance to the project. And in the end, of course, this came down to the fact that the, to, to build this dam, heavy earth-moving equipment would have to be transported into you know, remote areas, uh, difficult to penetrate and so on. The leader was called Nakliing Dulak, and uh, he was the leader of his community. So I guess he's, he's at the forefront, but it was a community effort. And I think you might know all the details of the story, Jan, but uh, besides the agitation, the education, and the expression to Marcos at the time it was the Marcos dictatorship, that the, the people didn't want this uh, project. It was pushed and pushed on them. So I think in the end, the story is that the people physically threw the heavy earth movement up a cliff and destroyed it. And at, at a certain point where the authorities just couldn't manage the situation, they, they relented and the World Bank withdrew. The project was cancelled. Um, but a few months after that, the military death squad and two other leaders. So this monument was only raised to their memory in 2017, so we're only talking about three years ago. Um, it's in the form of uh, big uh, metal plates with uh, cut-out silhouettes of the faces of those three leaders. Rather striking monument, and of course it's very important to the memory of that struggle and for those people in Kalinga especially. And uh, now the police have decided that uh, somehow or rather this is... a uh, a recruiting tool for the New People's Army or terrorism or something like that. But actually, it's a, you can see it as a sort of a calculated psychological warfare action to try to break the spirit of the people in Kalinga and of the whole Cordillera People's Alliance. That you know, resistance to the current wave of about 100 of these large-scale uh, projects which will destroy the land that resistance is futile. Obviously, I'd be uh, very, very upset at this uh, development, and you can see that it's a highly political thing. It's got nothing to do with terrorism or any physical threat to anyone. The fact that the monument is there. It's still there. I haven't heard of it being demolished, but it, the demolition order was meant to begin late last week. But I haven't heard a report that, that it happened. Is there any way that the people can relocate it? You know, it's, it's an artwork. It can be rebuilt, that's for sure. I don't think they would like to relocate it away from where it is because that's a significant site. Sure. The problem is that, you know, wherever you relocate it, if the police and the army are determined to stop it happening, uh, I think that in the current situation, they've got the overwhelming physical force in the end. Yeah, I, I don't know how the people will, will cope, but I, I'm sure that you know, if it is demolished, they will rebuild it. Uh, they'll find their way. You've written that over 250 global and local groups have pledged to defend the Cordillera. Can you explain who Brandon Lee is? 
Yeah, Brandon Lee is a, a Filipino-American. Uh, he's from, I think, from California, near San Francisco. About seven or eight years ago, decided to live in the Cordillera with the Ifugao people, another language group. He, in the end, married a local woman, and they've got a, two children. And he became a paralegal, like a, a helper for lawyers, for his community, uh, I think it was called the Ifugao Farmers Association. I'm not sure of the exact dates, uh, Jan, but I think in, in August last year, not that long ago, uh, he was uh, struck, I think, in the head, upper body with at least seven to ten bullets. So it was a sort of a assassination attempt. It's a miracle that he survived. None, none of the bullets struck in his spine or his brain. and. He was left for dead, but uh, he he was uh, initially taken to hospital in, in uh, the Cordillera. But because he was a U.S. citizen, um, he was able to be repatriated to the United States and uh, spend a long time in hospital. He's now at home, still needing a lot of rehabilitation, but he's able to speak. And I've seen him in some Zoom conferences talking about uh, his experience and uh, why, why it happened. In his case, because he was a dual citizen, the Duterte government made a huge overreach. The fact that uh, he's survived and able to tell his story had a significant impact in the United States and in the US Congress. What happened to him has helped fuel a, um, a bill in the Congress called the Philippines Human Rights Act, which would suspend all military aid to the Philippines until the human rights situation is radically improved. The bill's tabled and it's got many Democrat support but some Republican support as well and I guess we'll see early in the new year what happens to it but uh, there's hundreds of people with a story like Brandon but nearly all of them are dead and I guess Brandon's able to show show us you know what the cost of this repression really is and thanks once again to Peter Murphy, who's the chairperson of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. And if you would like to join the over 4,000 who have re-signed the petition to stop the demolition, go to the homepage of Defend Cordillera PH and sign the pact. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at footnote bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. And finally, on Tuesday Home Time, the first part of the 2020 Edward Said Memorial Lecture with Melissa Park. Good evening, everyone. I start by acknowledging that we are present 
on unceded Indigenous land. In my case here in Perth, it is the land of the Wajak Noongar people. We pay respect to their elders and to Aboriginal elders all around the country, past, present and emerging. The forced dispossession of our first Australians under the colonial terra nullius doctrine and the collective forgetting of this shameful history has much in common with the expulsion of Palestinians from their land during and after the Nakba and the frequent denial of their existence as a people and their humanity. Before there can be true reconciliation in either instance, there must be a comprehensive truth-telling. It is important to acknowledge also that the suffering of the First Australians and the Palestinians in turn has commonalities with the historic Jewish experience of exile and the horrific events preceding and during World War II, a fact highlighted by Edward Said when he suggested that one of the main obstacles to understanding between Jews and Palestinians lay in the unwillingness of both parties to acknowledge each other's suffering. Said maintained that for anyone to deny the horrendous experience of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust is unacceptable. We don't want anybody's history of suffering to go unrecorded and unacknowledged. On the other hand, there's a great difference between acknowledging Jewish oppression and using that as a cover for the oppression of another people. This lecture aims to focus on that oppression and explore the levers operating the cover. Thank you to the Australian Friends of Palestine Association, AFOPA, for hosting this event, and in particular Dr Bassam Daly and Chair of AFOPA, Edie Bransbury, for the invitation. I stand before you extremely humbled to have been given the honour of delivering this year's Edward Said Memorial Lecture, humbled by the stature of those who stood here before me and by the legacy of the extraordinary man after whom these lectures are named. Edward Said openly admired the work of German-Jewish author Hannah and Holocaust survivor Hannah Arendt, identifying with a fellow self-described exile and in particular her notion of the conscious pariah, a kind of intellectual rebel. In 1993, Saeed delivered the series of wreath lectures entitled Representations of the Intellectual, in which he said the following. The intellectual's place is publicly to raise embarrassing questions, to confront orthodoxy and dogma rather than to produce them, to be someone who cannot easily be co-opted by governments or corporations, and whose raison d'etre is to represent all those people and issues who are routinely forgotten or swept under the rug. The intellectual does so on the basis of universal principles, that all human beings are entitled to expect decent standards of behaviour concerning freedom and justice from worldly powers or nations, and that deliberate or inadvertent violations of these standards need to be testified against courageously. For Saeed, being a true public intellectual is a moral and amateur vocation that is open to all. Its purpose is to more compassionately press the interests of the unheard, the unrepresented, the comparatively powerless people of our world. And it therefore cannot be a professional role dependent on institutions of power and perceived respectability. In order to speak truth to power, one has to be detached from it to be moved not by profit or reward, but by love for an unquenchable interest in the larger picture, in making connections across lines and barriers. 
as noted by highly respected Canadian academic Hardy Imsyce, for whom Edward Said was a mentor, one of Said's great contributions was to affirm, not merely through his writings, but by personal example, that we all have more than a passing role in holding power and authority to account. Said's call to speak truth to power was not only directed at ivory tower elites, it was also a rallying cry, an attempt to wake in one and all a culture of dissent. Said was the public intellectual or conscious pariah par excellence, unafraid to criticise US imperialism and British and Zionist colonialism, to condemn expressions of anti-Semitism or Holocaust denial, while decrying the corruption and lack of democracy of the ruling Arab regimes. Said denounced the Palestinian leadership when he thought they betrayed their own during the Oslo process. And of course, history has proved his warnings correct. Said also described the complete hegemonic coalescence between the liberal Western view of things and the Zionist Israeli view, which had the consequence that fear of speaking out about one of the greatest injustices in modern history has hobbled, blinkered and muzzled many who know the truth and are in a position to serve it. Unlike Edward Said and your previous eminent guest speakers, I am not a great scholar, nor am I an expert and orientalist. I am simply someone who recognises injustice when I see it. I understand what it means to be on the side of the underdog, and yes, I am a Fremantle Dockers supporter. In the early 1990s, I was the solicitor in charge of a community legal centre in a regional area in Western Australia where I gave legal advice to and represented people from disadvantaged backgrounds who couldn't afford to pay a private lawyer. I saw how laws, government policies and systems often worked against the most vulnerable in society, and I campaigned for social justice reform. I later went on to work for the United Nations, as we heard, uh, starting with the uh, peacekeeping mission in Kosovo and from there to the legal office of UNRWA the UN agency responsible for the Palestine refugees in Gaza during the Second Intifada. From the moment I arrived in early 2002, I was struck by the hostility directed towards me by Israeli border officials at Ben-Gurion Airport and Defence Force personnel at the Erez crossing into Gaza. My status in their eyes seemed to be friend of terrorists, which I had not experienced anywhere else as a UN staff member. I would receive this treatment many more times myself and witness the far worse degrading way Israeli officials treated Palestinians, even if they were UN staff, and indeed anyone with an Arab name. I would also occasionally encounter kindness and humour in some of the Israeli soldiers and officials I dealt with, but those moments of light were few and far between. Overwhelmingly what I saw as someone living in the occupied Palestinian territories and as the legal officer responsible for drafting reports on violations of international human rights and humanitarian law was the accumulation of killings of civilians, including sheep herders and fishermen who had simply been going about their daily activities. And these incidents were so common, they almost never made the news. The day-by-day -day bulldozing of ancient olive groves, orange orchards and greenhouses, the administrative detention without charge, trial or any due process of tens, sometimes hundreds of people for weeks, months, 
and even years in a military court system that applies only to Palestinians. I saw the humiliations and interminable waiting at checkpoints, including the harassment of ambulances and pregnant women on their way to hospital, sometimes leading to the death of women and babies, and the delaying for days of farmers on their way to market until their fresh produce had gone bad. There was the relentless growth of illegal West Bank settlements, their buffer zones and settler-only roads, connecting them to Israel and other settlements the diversion of West Bank water for settlement lawns and swimming pools, while only a comparative trickle was allowed to impoverished Palestinian communities. The gratuitous settler violence that passed uncriticised and unpunished. The curiously circuitous route of the wall, which appeared designed to include as much Palestinian land with as few Palestinian people as possible. The same wall that was declared by the International Court of Justice in 2004 to be illegal, and an opaque system of checkpoints, closures, curfews and permits that severely restricted freedom of movement, access to services and the capacity of Christians and Muslims to access holy places. There were requirements for Palestinians to apply to the Israeli military for permits to do just about anything on their own land, including planting a veggie patch, digging a well or building an extension to their house. Most of the time the permits were not granted and if any work was done without a permit, their house could be demolished. I saw firsthand how the Israeli state had devised literally thousands of ways to make life difficult for the Palestinians. All of this pointed to something sinister and symptomatic, systematic, an occupation without end or relief in sight. These daily cruelties would be punctuated by larger events such as bombings on Gaza, armed incursions into West Bank villages, targeted assassinations and house demolitions, often said to be retaliation for attack by Palestinians. It seemed that only the Palestinian attacks got reported in the Western media, never the context of relentless occupation. Despite the absolute prohibition under international law of attacks on medical officers and UN personnel, not long after I started working with UNRWA, an UNRWA medical officer, Kamal Hamdan, was shot dead in the back of a UN ambulance in the West Bank by the Israel Defence Force, or IDF. This occurred after the ambulance had been given clearance by the IDF to proceed into the Tulkarim refugee camp to collect wounded refugees. The Israeli government claimed that there had been a Palestinian militant hiding in the ambulance. That was subsequently proven by UNRWA to be false, but by then the media train had moved on. Later that year, a British UN staff member, Ian Hook, who like me had worked in the UN peacekeeping mission in Kosovo before coming to Palestine, was standing in a UN compound in the Janine refugee camp, talking on his mobile phone to the IDF, when he was shot in the back by an Israeli sniper, situated in a high building overlooking the compound. After Ian was shot, the UN ambulance was then prevented by the IDF from entering the compound to collect Ian, requiring UN staff to break a hole in the fence to take him out. Ian died in the ambulance on the way to hospital. The Israeli government initially falsely claimed there had been shots fired from the UN compound towards Israeli forces. Apart from a statement from the UN Secretary General expressing concern and requesting a thorough investigation, there was no accountability for Ian's death 
and other war crimes against UN staff. In the end, 65 international UN staff in Israel and the occupied territories, including me and my boss, the head of the International Legal Division of UNRWA, issued an open letter calling for an independent investigation and accountability for Israel, an unprecedented action from UN officials who take their impartial status seriously. When still nothing happened after that, we realised that Israel could and would act with impunity. While I was in Gaza, US peace activist Rachel Corrie was run over and killed by an Israeli military bulldozer as she protested the demolition of Palestinian houses in the south of Gaza. Then Brian Avery, an American volunteer with the International Solidarity Movement in Janine, was shot in the face by the IDF and severely disfigured. A few days later, Tom Herndall, a British photography student and volunteer with ISM, was shot by the IDF in Gaza and subsequently died. And just three weeks later, British film producer James Miller was shot and killed by the IDF while filming a documentary in Gaza. I mention the international cases because it makes Israel's audacity, its complete impunity, even when it has wrongfully caused the death of nationals of Israel's own strong allies, more obvious. Before he was shot, Tom Herndl had written in his journal, what do I want from this life? What makes you happy is not enough. All the things that satisfy our instincts only satisfy the animal in us. I want to be proud of myself. I want more. I want to look up to myself and when I die, I want to smile because of the things I've done, not cry for the things I haven't done. While the international media <clears throat> picked up on these killings, it rarely led to any kind of accountability. Of the cases just mentioned, only the soldier who shot Tom Herndl was ultimately convicted of manslaughter, although the IDF field report had originally exonerated the soldier and falsely claimed Tom was holding a gun. That report was withdrawn after many witnesses contradicted it. A case reported to me by one of our international protection officers in early 2003 involved a Palestinian refugee woman being ordered by an IDF soldier at a checkpoint in Gaza to drink a corrosive bleach-like liquid. UNRWA reported the incident to the IDF and the female soldier involved was subsequently charged in an Israeli military tribunal. In 2009, the BBC and the Mizan Organisation for Human Rights reported a popular military pastime that involved IDF soldiers commissioning violent and offensive printed T-shirts, depicting, for instance, an image of a pregnant Palestinian woman with her belly in the crosshairs of a rifle and text beneath in Hebrew saying, one shot, two kills. In both of the aforementioned cases, the IDF had stated that this conduct was not in accordance with IDF values. However, looking at all of the other designed and deliberate cruelties inflicted daily on the Palestinians that are approved by the Israeli state, is it any wonder that some soldiers have interpreted cruelty in their own way? The revelations from courageous former Israeli soldiers in breaking the silence, the 42 knees in one day expose in Haaretz newspaper of IDF snipers boasting about their shooting of unarmed protesters during the Great March of Return in Gaza. The massively disproportionate number of Palestinian civilian deaths during major Israeli military operations. 
all of this points to a culture that is irreconcilably at odds with Israel's representations of the IDF as the world's most moral army. While I was in Gaza, over time, the cumulative impact of the terrifying bombing campaigns and the omits involving a targeted airstrike on a car not far from mine, the intrusive security interrogations and searches, the oppressive control, degrading treatment and impoverishment of the Palestinian people, the killing of civilians and colleagues for which there was no accountability, being isolated in my apartment when security was at risk, which it frequently was, and not having an outlet to express fears, frustrations, loneliness, and a profound sense of hopelessness. All of this led me to slide into a deep depression. But two things happened that changed my perspective. First, early one evening in August, I went to the harbour in Gaza City for a commemoration of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This year, by the way, is the 75th anniversary of those terrible events, and Australia is inexcusably refusing to sign on to the treaty banning nuclear weapons. At the harbour in Gaza, there were hundreds of schoolchildren who had made little paper boats with candles in them. They lit the candles and set them afloat on the harbour as the sun set. It was a stunningly beautiful and moving moment imprinted forever in my memory. I was struck by the fact that here were children who had themselves been subjected to daily and nightly bombing campaigns, remembering children from another time and another place who'd been bombed. The second thing that happened was when I attended the wedding of one of the young Palestinian staff members from the legal office. At first I was saddened by the fact that the bride's flowers were plastic. When I offered to try to procure some fresh flowers, she laughed and told me this was normal. They prefer plastic flowers because they don't die. She looked so full of happiness and hope for the future. And later that day, I joined in as the women danced together as if they hadn't a care in the world. Something shifted in me and I felt deeply ashamed of the thoughts I'd been having. I reflected that if these people who had experienced so much pain, who had so few material possessions and who every day faced a battle for their survival could still celebrate beauty, life and hope with plastic flowers and candlelight in little paper boats, then surely I could too. So I stayed in both a literal and metaphorical sense with an abiding gratitude for the indomitable Palestinian spirit. After two and a half years in Gaza, I continued my work with the UN in New York and Lebanon. In 2007, I left the United Nations to return to Australia and stand for the federal seat of Fremantle in the election that year. When I arrived in Canberra as an MP, I joined the Parliamentary Friends of Palestine, co-chaired by Labor MP Maria Van Bakanu and Liberal MP Susan Lay, and got to know the wonderful people from Australians for Palestine and the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, APAN who would visit the Parliament from time to time. Given my unusual background for an Australian MP, as someone who had lived and worked in Palestine, I felt a particular obligation to speak up about what was happening there. I was careful in what I said, basing my comments around violations of international law for the most part. It soon became apparent though, that from the Israel lobby's perspective, if you were not 100% on the Israeli government side, you would be treated as an enemy. 
The Honourable Bob Carr has written extensively on this and on the pervasive influence of the lobby on Australian politics. So I will simply note that research by ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, shows that over the period 2010 to 2018, Australian federal MPs received 102 sponsored trips to Israel, significantly more than the 63 trips to China or the 49 trips to the US. The largest sponsor of non-government funded trips was the Australia, Israel and Jewish Affairs Council. Recent research by APAN has shown that that situation has continued in the last two years, with Australian federal MPs again receiving more sponsored trips to Israel than to any other country. And that was the first part of the 2020 Edward Said Memorial Lecture with Melissa Park.